0: Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the letter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15 and extending all the way to verse 25. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. That is Moses. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God... Well, he is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we now, in these few moments together around your word, give attention to that which you have already spoken to us, we ask, Lord, in the preaching, in the unfolding, in the expounding of this, your text, that you would be present with us by the Spirit. Indeed, the Spirit must be the preacher, for apart from his illuminating and interpreting work, we are at a loss as to receive from your word that which you intend. But with the Spirit, all things are possible. For the very power of God is present when the Spirit is present. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask in the work that you have been commissioned and called to do, to take this word and make it sing, make it alive to our hearts. We would ask in great measure that you would do so right now. Knowing each and every story in this room as you do, the ins and outs, We would ask that you would portion out the truth of this word and its grace in direct measure to what is needed for each and every soul in this room. That wisdom alone rests upon you. And so we come utterly dependent now, asking you to come and do your work among us, to glorify Jesus and to set before us the wonder and astonishment of the gospel. Humbly now we kneel and we ask you to come and do that very work. Move about us and glorify Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would be remiss this morning to not note at uh, the opening of this moment an answer to prayer in our midst. I can't tell you how many prayers from those of you here in this room and from so many in our community were lifted up for our dear brother Jackson Thomas. And today, by God's grace, he's here in this room with us. That's a miracle of God's work, that he is with us. Those of you who don't know the story of Jackson and the Thomas family Jackson was out west with a friend doing some touring around in the beautiful countryside out west and was in a very tragic car accident where we nearly lost him. And today, by a work of God's grace, God maintained his health, has restored him, and beyond what any of us hoped in those early days, he is sitting with us upright and in his right mind. (laughs) Praise be the Lord. At least as right a mind as he can be. You know know what I mean in that. Jackson, we rejoice that you're here. And Thomas family, we rejoice to see you here this morning. As many of you know, the Lord had called the Thomas family to Greece to serve with Servant Group International. And almost at the point they landed and got settled in, they had to rush back. Here to care for their son Jackson and did so sacrificially. And the Lord last Monday brought him back here home to Franklin. And so welcome home. And we rejoice that you're here with us. So an incredible answer to prayer right in the midst this morning. Another answer to prayer this morning. Another answer to prayer. And for those of you who are wondering, okay, he's an apple guy. All right, so what's, what's the deal? So when I flew out with Rosalind, we took off to Denver to go visit Jackson and the Thomas family. It's over a month ago now. I was walking through the security checkpoint at BNA Airport here in Nashville. And before, uh, as I was walking through that, I took my computer out because I'm not one of those TSA pre-check people like some of you. And I pulled my computer out, put it in the bin, and apparently never got it out. Not really sure what happened. But it ended up in someone else's suitcase and I got an email the next day from the person who got the computer and he was in China, China, with my computer. He lives there and he travels a lot. That was a month ago. We've tried so many things to get this machine here. Apparently it's a big deal to ship a computer with a battery in it. Apparently bad things can be done with batteries and shipping, I don't know. But anyway, it's hard to do, apparently. So just a couple of weeks ago, our dear brother Steve Mueller, Steve's back there in the back. I'm pointing out people today. This is kind of what's going to be like, beware, you're next, okay? So just get ready. But Steve in the back, as we were at the door at the end of one of the, one of the messages, he said, Nate, have you gotten your computer back? And I said, no, I haven't. And he reminded me that Mike Forte, who's an um, airline pilot with United here in our congregation, flies in and out of China at a regular basis and so this last week he flew into Beijing my computer was sent to his hotel he picked it up and he brought it back to me (laughs) and we have had it scanned there are no bombs that we're aware of Nancy I'm going to put this right here by you don't take it don't don't take it all right so lots of answers to prayer this morning. I, I just let's we just pray and go home. This is just a sweet this is a sweet morning. Some of you are like, no, I'm not going to get off that easy. You know, you know, I'm going to give you a message. So we're going to get ready. You know that computer. One of the things I learned about that computer is how important it is in my life. I wrote about this, and and uh, one of the things is we all have tools, right? Important tools in our lives, and it's important that we understand the nature of those tools. How they work, um, what they're good for. Um, it's not always easy to discern what a tool is is good for. Those of you who are handy men or handy women in this room might, you know, intuitively look at tools and see issues and kind of work through them. I be not one of those people. Not a handyman. All thumbs when it comes to handy work. So you're right. You know, I can do the word thing. I can do the speaking thing. Don't ask me to come fix your refrigerator. I'm not your guy. But when I was 8, nine, ten years old, somewhere in there, I was having trouble with the chain on my bicycle. You know, I was pedaling so hard, i hit a little bump and it was loose. You know how the chains do, they fall off as you got to tighten them. It's really frustrating. So my father would regularly do this, but he wasn't home when this happened. So I decided I was going to fix it. I'd seen him do it. I, I can do this. So I turned the bike over and I'm kind of working to get it on there. And it needs to be loosened, right? The little, what do you call that thing? The little hub there with the chains on? Hub. That's what we're going to call it. little hub there. The chain goes on. You need to loosen that in order to get the chain on it. And so, again, I'm young. I look at it, and there's a little bolt coming through. And I was like, well, I just need to hammer that thing out. Right? I mean, that's what, I mean surely that's what you do. It looks like a nail to me. And so I just begin hammering. Of course, I noticed nothing happened. Nothing positive happened in terms of the movement. And I began to bend the bolt. Well, lo and behold, I go and get some help, and I'm introduced to this thing called a wrench. Wrenches are what you need to to do that work and ultimately was able to unscrew it, ultimately able to get the chain back on. And we need to realize, listen, certain tools are good for certain tasks and and then they're not good for other tasks. If you have a nail and you need to hammer something, you need a hammer. If you have a a screw and you need to unscrew it, you you need a wrench or you need a screwdriver. If you wind up using a tool for a purpose that it's not intended for, you just might break something you just might cause a lot of trouble. In a very real sense, the Apostle Paul in this passage is exploring the tool of the law with us. He's saying the law has been designed for a particular purpose and you need to know how to use it. If you wind up using it wrong, you just might break something. And if you break something, it might cause spiritual damage, whether to a congregation or to a soul, It might actually cause the kind of damage that leads someone utterly astray from Christ, which is the opposite of the law's intention. Look at how Paul says it in verse 19. He raises the question, why then the law? It's a purpose question. Why is it here? What's it good for? What can we lean on it for and expect from it, but what can we not expect from it? What can it not do? Verse 21 he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He begins to unpack the law and he notices the law is not the promise and the promise is not the law. And in some ways to look at the law and the promise you might think that they're at odds with each other. You might think they're contradictory. Is God speaking in one sense out of both sides of his mouth? And is making it very confusing so much so that the promises seem contradictory to the law and the law seems contradictory to the promises, Is that what's actually going on in the scripture? And that's why Christianity is so confusing. Because at the very center, God has not brought into harmony the promises with the law. Is that what's happening? The Apostle Paul is raising these questions because the church at Galatia has lost their way. They have been smuggling in works to the promises of God. Through the false teachers who have come into Galatia who have taught... That it's not just believing on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation of where your justification or acceptance is before God, but also you must obey the works of the law. We explored that phrase over the last couple of weeks together. It's it's faith plus works. In other words, it's just works. Because works, by its very definition, if it winds up being your means of salvation, trumps faith alone. It actually nullifies or undermines the very concept of a promise. And so the question that Paul is raising for us is an age-old question, and I think a challenge that every believer in every community and every era in church history has struggled with, to more or less degree. How are we to understand the promises of God in relationship to the law of God? Well, very simply this morning, I want to look at this passage in just two ways. I want to look at the promise and its nature, and I want to look at the law and its nature, and I want you to see how the gospel brings them together. I want you to see the the promise and its nature. I want you to see uh, the law and its nature. And then I want you to see the gospel and how it brings it all together. When we look at the promise, we want to actually see two things that the Apostle Paul highlights in this text. He talks about the direction of the promise. That is, to whom the promise actually points. And then secondly, we want to talk about the duration. How long is the promise good for How long is the promise good for? Now, I want you to see he's doing this within the context of the story of Abraham. Look at verse 16. Now, the promises were made, he says, to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but instead to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, we looked last week together, if you were with us, at the story of Abraham because Paul began to invoke Abraham at the beginning of Galatians chapter 3. He says the story of Abraham actually proves the point that I'm trying to make. Because Abraham was justified by faith alone, Genesis 15, 6. Long before the works of the law were ever given. It wasn't until Genesis 17 that circumcision was given. And it wouldn't be till 430 years later that the law would be given. So long before there were any commands to have to fulfill, he was already justified by faith alone in the promises of God. That was the point Paul made last week. And he said, see, therefore, therefore if that's the case, you don't need works to be saved. Salvation is by faith alone. Now here... In Genesis 12 to 15 that he's going back to here in verse 16, he's making a similar but different point. He's asking the question, to whom is the offspring in reference to when you look at the promises of Abraham? If we were to take the time this morning to go back to Genesis 15 and examine the promises specifically, you would read that the promise was to Abraham and to his singular offspring, not to offsprings, plural. Now the point he's trying to make there is that if it was plural, it would be in reference to many. There would be many different offsprings or seeds. It could be translated coming forth from Abraham. This would be a reference as many took it in the first century. Those who were Jewish scholars took it to be a reference to the nation of Israel. It's speaking to the people of Israel. The many Israelites, they are going to be the blessing to the earth. It's the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan. All of the promises fulfilled in the ethnic people, that in of itself is the blessing to all of the nations. He's referring to the many, but that's not what Paul says here. He says, actually, if you look at the sheer grammar of the way that the promise is given, what you see is it's speaking singular. And when it speaks singular, it speaks of Christ. It's actually the promise of Abraham is looking through the centuries to a greater son of Abraham one who will be a true blessing and fulfillment of the promises of God, far beyond Isaac, and certainly far beyond Ishmael, or Jacob, or Joseph, which we see throughout the whole of the book of Genesis. In fact, if you look at the book of Genesis, you could argue that the book of Genesis is just simply an unfolding of a family, for the most part. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and to Joseph, and we see this seed That's extending from Abraham. But what we see, the seed is a seed that is fallen. It's a seed that is sinful. And it's a seed that in many cases doesn't succeed or triumph. And certainly can't fulfill the promises of God in the way that they are dictated in Genesis 15. So what does it mean? It means we're to look to someone else. And Paul has already told us in the book of Galatians and reiterates today. That offspring, that seed of Abraham, the true seed. Singular, is Jesus. He is the ultimate fulfillment of what it is the Abrahamic promises we're always pointing to. Now, in saying that, hopefully you can hear in the background the Judaizers ask this question. Well, if that's the case, if one is justified by faith alone in Abraham's promise fulfilled only in Christ, what are we to make of the law? What are we to make of God's covenant with his people in Exodus chapter 20 when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments and brings it to the people? How are we to understand the law? Did he not at that point decide to change the game? Had it before... Uh, leading up from Abraham to Moses, hadn't it been salvation by faith and not by works? But now, for sure, at least when Moses shows up, doesn't he add in works as a part of your acceptance with God? And notice what Paul says. He says, No, that's not the case. Follow his logic in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, and it's an example from the legal world, he says, Even a man made covenant, no one can annul it or add to it once it has been ratified. Verse 17. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying when God is given a promise and he established the terms of the covenant back in Genesis 15, and that justification came by faith alone apart from works of the law... God later, because of the ratification of that covenant, can't change the terms of the game. Even in man-made documents, that's the case. Think of a will and testament. Your parents, God forbid, they pass away. You're a child. You stand before the judge for the will to be read. In the will, we learn that you get, you know we're in the first we're in the first century here you get you get the horses you get the tent you get you get everything you get all the possessions you get the you get the wealth of the family and then the judge says oh yeah but by the way we're going to in order for you to get all that you're going to need to do x y and z you're going to need to earn this you're going to need to achieve that you're going to need to accomplish that and at the end of that then you'll get the inheritance the judge can't add in To an already ratified will and testament that's been secured by the one who has the inheritance. He doesn't have the right to go back in and change the very terms of the agreement. In fact, if he does that, doesn't it cease to be an inheritance? An inheritance by its very definition is what? A gift that is passed down to you. Not by basis of earnings, but by basis of relationship. By basis of the kind of relationship that we have in Christ. Paul here is saying 430 years later the law comes, it can't turn the promises of God on its head. And those things which were once received by faith alone in the promise of God can't now be received by works because that document's already been ratified and sealed by the Lord. God can't say, you know what, I've changed my mind, I want the game to go differently. It's not working out how I hoped it was. I'm going to add in some works now to make sure that's how you'll be accepted with the Lord. He says, so the duration of the promise is eternal. It can never be changed because it's ultimately ratified by God and it's founded by Him. And the fulfillment of the promise comes years into the future. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the actual seed of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the promise. Now hopefully you can hear a question rising if that's true. If you can't be saved by works and Christ is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham... And it's not through earning that we gain a standing with the Lord. Why do we have the law? Why did he he add in the law 430 years later? That's the reference here to Moses. He's the intermediary in this context. He's the, the law given by angels, as he described. Why did he add this in? Now, if you're tracking with that question, I want you to see his very simple but nuanced and, I would say, quite complex answer. He says in verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions. The law was added because of transgressions. Now, what does this mean? Well, let me give you an illustration. I want to go back to the tool illustration. There are certain tools, as you handy men know in this room, there are certain tools that just have one primary function. You know, these are your screwdrivers and your pliers and your your hammers. But there are some of you who have incredible tools. You know, you have these tools that do all kinds of different things. These multi-tools, right? Tools like Leathermans and, and, and these, you know, Swiss Army knives, right? A tool that you can pull out does all kinds of different things. So I want you to think, when you think of the law in the reference of the tool, I want you to think it's more like the Leatherman or the Swiss Army knife than it is like the screwdriver. It has multiple uses in the Bible. The law is not just one dimensional in the way the Bible speaks about it. It has multiple things it accomplishes. And Paul is alluding, potentially in this text, to two of what theologians have primarily called three uses, three uses for how the law is used in the Scripture. I want to look with you first at the first use of the law in the Scripture. It's the one you know the best. It's what we might call the civic use of the law. This is when the law comes as a guide or a directive for the ordering of society. The law comes as a guide or a directive for the ordering of society. Now listen, every town that you've ever lived in, to whatever degree, has had laws. There are things that you can and you cannot do. And there are people that if you do the things that you can't do, who are going to show up and enforce that. Okay. There are those who execute the law, there are those who establish the law, and it happens in every municipality, no matter how large or no matter how small. There are rules, there are laws by which we are to obey. That civic ordering of law is part of what the law has in mind. But listen, the law doesn't just work that way at the national level or at the political level. It works that way in any organization. Schools have laws, all kinds of policies. Businesses have laws. Certain organizations have laws. Churches have laws. Hey, your family has laws. Uh, laws about coming to supper and what you do with your dishes when you're done. You got all kinds of things. And the reason for those laws are in place is order to keep the peace. It's order to have an organized society, a community that runs well, like this week. Nathaniel actually sent my family an email, along with the youth here at Cornerstone, those who are going on the upcoming mission trip. And you know what he wants to, he has the audacity to ask this, for us to sign a waiver and to abide by certain rules on this trip that goes out. Now why does he do that? Because he wants to keep order. He wants to legally do the right thing. Even Dave Dillard with Servant Group International this week as I'm going on this mission trip to Greece made me well aware that I'm delinquent in filling out my last form. Which I'm usually late at doing those kinds of things. And I filled it out and he made me fill out all these checklists about things I'm not going to do when I'm in Greece. And things that I promise to not do. you know. And if I do them, these things will happen to me. <laughs> A lot of red tape with this SGI group, Right? No, it's a, it's a rule in order to keep the peace, in order to order our our pathway. Romans 13 tells us that the magistrate have been given that kind of rule of law. They've actually been given a sword by which to reward good and punish those who are evil. Now, this, this form of the law operates primarily on fear. It operates primarily on fear. So, for instance, I was listening to Matt Chandler this week as I was doing a little working out and I was listening to him on this very passage, and he used the example, the illustration. He said, most of us don't speed badly. We speed a little. He says, the reason we speed a little is we think we can get away with a little, but we can't get away with a lot. And we're always guessing when we're going down the interstate how much is a little and how much is a lot as to who's going to get caught. Now, he says, let me ask you, if you speed a little or you speed a lot, are, are you more righteous if you speed less or if you speed more? Well, the answer is the orientation of the heart. The heart is still trying to get away with as much as it can get away with without actually dealing with the consequences of that very issue, which means that the law is intended to curb or prevent or hold us in check to at least a degree to where we won't endanger everybody else on the road to keep with the illustration. When Paul says he added the law because of transgressions, he could mean this first use of the law because the law certainly is used this way. It's meant to have restrained society. But there's possibly a second use of the law that he has in view, and I actually think this is probably closer to Paul's point. Uh, The second use of the law, if we go back to the law and we pull out another piece of the Swiss army knife of the law, and we have another tool here, how the law can be used, the second use is called the evangelical use of the law. The evangelical use of the law. John Calvin refers to this as the spiritual use of the law. This is the law that warns and informs and convicts and actually in the end condemns everyone of his own righteousness. In a strange sense, this purpose of the law is not to prevent or to curb our sins or to keep us in check. In a strange way, this form of the law actually provokes sin. It stirs us up in a way to sin. It makes an already bad situation worse. Two ways that this works. I want you to think first of the law as exposing our sin. One of the key goals in the evangelical use of the law is that it would expose our sinfulness. Listen to Paul in Romans 3:20. He says, "For by works of the law no human being will be justified, since through the law comes knowledge" of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sins. He said no one will be justified by the law because as soon as you begin to understand the law, you'll begin to understand you can't be justified by it. It will increase your sense of knowledge for sin. Listen to how Paul says it more specifically in Romans 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then he digs in a little bit and gets specific. I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. Now, maybe you, like me, at times, you think you're a pretty good guy. I mean, For the most part, you, you don't live in egregious, flagrant ways, at least that nobody could tell. In the eyes of most people, you're upstanding, even in my own heart. Sometimes I like to think that. Until... I actually look at the law. I think that normally when I'm comparing myself to somebody else's life. And normally compare myself to somebody else's struggle. <laughs> you know, so-and-so has a struggle in this and I don't. So then uh, I'm a better person than they are. I'd never say that. I'd never voice that to you. But that's a dirty little secret in my heart. You need to pray for me. But I happen to believe I'm probably my own friends. I'm thinking I'm probably not alone in that stream of thought. The recognition is I'm usually comparing myself to someone else and feeling pretty good. But as soon as I put myself up against the straight edge of the law, I realize I am horribly bent. The Apostle Paul said, I didn't realize I had that much of an issue with coveting until I started studying coveting. And I started reading the law. And then all of a sudden I realized I was in a really bad place. I realized all of a sudden that I don't nearly do the things that I ought to do. I read this in the first service. I was looking at it earlier this week from our glorious larger catechism in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I was looking at it. Next week is General Assembly for us. It's our national meeting of the Presbyterian Church in America. And I was looking through some of the overtures. My mind was prompted to kind of go to the larger catechism to think on some, And I happened to come across this question. Question 113, what is forbidden in the third commandment? You remember the third commandment? Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, if you were just to ask me, stop me on the street, cold turkey. Nate, do you take the Lord's name in vain? No. No. Nate doesn't take the, the Lord's name in vain. And most of you are thinking, well, I don't unless I'm really, really mad. That's rare. And so I'm doing pretty good on this one. Well, well listen. Listen to larger catechism. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are not using of God's name as is required and also the abuse of it. Now listen to what it's trying to say. It's saying when it says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's also saying, honor the Lord's name to the degree that it's supposed to be. The positive. Not just the negative, but the positive implication is, you must honor the Lord's name to the degree that he should be honored. And so it begins to talk about, if you speak of God ignorantly, meaning you don't know what you're talking about, but you're talking about him anyway. If you speak of God in a vain way, meaning you don't give him the appropriate measure of respect that he's due. If you speak of him irreverently or profanely, meaning you're actually speaking down about him in any way. If you're superstitious regarding him, not treating him like a person but more like he's a force. If you in any way use his title or his attributes or any of his commands or works that are reflective of his character in a way that's inconsistent with blasphemy or perjury or maybe sinful cursings. If you don't keep oaths or laws that you've made, With regards to his character in fulfilling them. If you murmur, you quarrel. Or you're curious into applying the God's decrees and providences. Or misinterpreting or perverting his word in any way as to give form a different character. If you ask curious or unprofitable questions about him that are not directly related to the way in which he's revealed. Or the maintaining of false doctrines or abusing any of his creatures contained which were actually reflective of his names. Or, I could go on. All of a sudden, I do this a lot. All of a sudden, you begin to understand in by meditating, just a little bit on the requirements of the law, you begin to realize, wait, when when you say it that way, when I'm actually forced to stop and think of how being in the name of God is exhibiting his character, and in any way that I don't exhibit his character... Whether in thought, word, or deed, I'm in some way taking of his name the sins of his character in vain. All of a sudden, I realize I've got a lot more to confess than I realized. Do you know what the the Bible says? The law is supposed to do that for you. That's That's not bad. That's good. The law is supposed to lead you to that place. Now, it exposes sin. But listen, I want to go a little further because I think Paul's going further. It doesn't just expose sin. It incites sin. Like The law will actually bring you to sin. It will produce it within you. Now that may sound really weird to say and I would probably not want to say it unless, well, the Bible says it. So look at Romans 7. Romans 7 verse 9. Here's Paul. But sin, and he's using it like a power within him, a force within him. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now what he's trying to get at here, this producing of sin within me, I want you to just hearken to your experience here. In fact, I had a man recently who was telling me about his childhood. And he said, you know what, I was that child. If you told me not to do something and it was wrong, I wanted to do it all the more. Some of us are going, yeah, that sounds familiar. Sounds familiar for a lot of our histories. That as soon as God says, thou shalt not, we go, thou shalt. We say, who are you? <laughs> Who's going to tell me how to run my life? Now, now, that reaction that rises up within you, you know what that's called? Rebellion. It's called sin. When the law comes, the fascinating thing about what it actually does to a sinner is it makes you sin. Not really, but you will. It's not the problem, it's not with the law, but it's with you. It's with your own heart. Now, if you go, I don't really struggle with that, wait till someone confronts you on your sin. Don't you just immediately go, you are so right, I completely apologize. That's your initial reaction, right? No defensiveness, no denial. You don't blame shift. You don't explain it away or excuse it, do you? not that I would know anything about these things no I'm in that boat with you the recognition is that when we are in those moments we actually sin in response to the law the law has in a sense an increasing effect of our sin it draws it out of us now you start to feel kinda small (laughs) like maybe you got a lot of issues This particular second use of the law, you know what it's called? Let me just remind you. The evangelical use of the law. That word evangelical means gospel use of the law. What that means is the goal of this experience with the law is to lead you to a place where you despair of being able to keep the law and realize that all you have hope for is the mercy and the grace of God. That's the goal of it. The law was actually given for that purpose. I want you to see how Paul describes it. Verse 22. He says, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. He says, when you get the law pressing in on you, you feel caged in. Because every time I try to do better, I realize that I fall short. And when I learn more about the law, I always realize there's more to do that I don't do. Verse 23. I'm held captive under the law and imprisoned. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian. But what often happens with us is we are led to the point of despair regarding ourselves and the law. But we're not led to the response to seize Christ. That's how you know grace is actually operable. You know what actually happens? You wind up getting in a cycle of shame. You go, oh, I'm just a terrible person. I can't get anything right. And, and actually, if, we, if you were in a truth-telling moment, which most of the time we're not when we do something like that, the answer would be, you're exactly right. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get it right. You're not going to get it right. The law is actually leading you to a place where you are shut up to mercy alone. You actually give up on your ability to adjudicate or make yourself righteous or acceptable in the sight of God by your works. The law is pushing you towards that direction but a lot of times we cycle in despair rather than pivoting in faith towards the one who will give us hope and foundation we stay there we wallow in it or we respond by i'll do better tomorrow you know what i need i need better methods i need better methods i need better forms I need I I need I need a a better better book to help me. I need a new blog post that needs to be written for. I know that podcast that'll get. That's how we turn and we think we're going to clean up the act by simple method. And what the Bible's trying to say is, you're actually subverting the very purpose of the law when you jump to that place first. The place that you need to jump to is utter despair of yourself in being able to keep the law and then utter delight and joy in Christ that he's kept it for you. And your standing is found in him and not in your performance. That's what the law is trying to do. The law is actually trying to do that. Now we know that because of the language he uses here. He uses the word guardian. He said the law was your guardian. Now that word is where we get the Greek, the Greek word behind that word is where we get the English word pedagogy. It means to, to a speaking or a teaching philosophy. The law's teaching you something. And we go, oh yeah, it's teaching us something. It's teaching us about how bad we are. Well, yes. But the guardianship is more than that. It's not merely parameter or protection. The teachingship means that it's leading you to something. The word is for a young boy who needs a governess. One who needs someone to look after him. But someone who, as she looks after him... He grows up because she teaches him what it's like to be mature. That's the context. He says the law is like a governess. It's like a guardian. It's like a schoolmaster. It's like a tutor. It's teaching you that which you need to know in order to be able to live maturely. So what's the law teaching you? It's showing you over and over and over and over and over you need Christ. You need Christ. And the quicker in your despair that you pivot to him, the quicker will be both the recovery and experience of grace and the growth within it. That's the purpose of what the law is actually given. It's meant to lead you to that place. That's why William Strong calls it the handmaiden of the gospel. The handmaiden of the gospel. Why John Stott said, God gave the law in his grace in order to make the promise of Christ more desirable. Now, what's fascinating is, because of transgressions, verse 19, he gives you the law. The law was not an alternate path by which to be saved. The law was another means by which to show you how badly you need the promise. It was another way by which to show you how badly you needed the promise of a Savior. Its goal and its purpose in doing so was just that. Now in light of the depth of the law that we read, just a glimmer of of one of the commandments here. Or we could turn to Matthew 5-7 to and let Jesus unpack the law for us in the Sermon of the Mount and go deep into the recesses of our heart. I want you to think with me as we draw to a conclusion. If we are a people who do not have grace and law in the proper relationship with one another, what begins to happen to our hearts and our community? Let's think of it first this way. If we speak of grace... Without law, what begins to happen? What kind of heart is conditioned? I'd like to suggest it's a, it's a heart that becomes entitled. It's a heart that feels like it can presume upon grace. It's a heart that believes it deserves forgiveness. And maybe you've caught this in yourself where you've done something wrong... And your assumption to the person who's bringing it to you is that they ought to forgive you. They ought to cut you slack. Your assumption is that they ought to. There's nothing in the Bible that says you should assume that. In fact, what you deserve is absolute judgment because of it. So the surprise is that you would have grace. But when we are ceased to be surprised by grace, we're often falling into a presumptive entitlement of grace. It's like you're in the situation where you know you want to sin, and you're trying to fight the sin, but then you have this thought. Not that I've ever had this thought. You know, I think I'll go ahead and sin and ask for forgiveness later. Presumptive about grace. What makes me think that I can force God to forgive me? Push his hand towards grace? What makes me think that I can act as it were Lord over his dispensing of grace? That in of itself is a rebellious and arrogant heart. And that is a presumption that is a very shaky ground. If we are speaking of grace without law. But what happens in the reverse if we speak of law without grace? What happens if we speak of law without grace? Well, I'd like to suggest that we live guilt-ridden, condemned, and shame-filled lives that are constantly trying to be better in the rat race of the next command or the next acceptability standard. That's constantly knowing in the back of our minds and often in the forefront of our hearts that we don't measure up. As we look to those who are around us or as we look to God and we realize that we're on a shaky foundation all of the time. We live with that sense of overwhelming shame. But thirdly, what if we speak of law and grace together? What if we actually hold them together and we allow the law to lead us to grace and we allow the grace to lead us to law? What would happen in a case like that? Well, You know what would happen? Your love for and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ would increase all the more. And the reason I know that that would be the case is that Jesus is both simultaneously absolutely committed to the law and the very source of our grace simultaneously. He is the perfect, absolute, complete law keeper on your behalf. He says not a jot or a tittle from the law will be wiped away. Not a least stroke. I will fulfill it all. I will uphold it completely. And it will be through my fulfillment that I will dispense grace. He doesn't opt for one or the other. He gives you both. In fact, it's in his fulfilling of the law that he becomes a portal for grace for us. Because we could never stand before the Lord and flash our brownie points of obedience. And expect to have any passport into the presence of the Lord. But Jesus is there on our behalf. In fact, on Ascension Sunday, we celebrated the fact that he's at the right hand of the Father, fully accepted. And the Holy Spirit now mediates on our behalf. So much so, do you know what that means? Your presence is in heaven right now by virtue of the Holy Spirit. You are fully represented before the throne of grace. How is that possible? Think about your Saturday night. Or your Sunday morning just trying to get breakfast ready to come here. Or the car ride that was worse than that. (laughs) The law is intending to get you to the place where you realize how desperate you are in your need of Christ. And thus when you see the beauty of what it is he's accomplished. In keeping the law for you and dispensing grace to you because you're wrapped in his perfect standard. Your love for and devotion for Jesus Increases all the more. And if your love and devotion for Jesus is increasing. Here is the necessary following consequence. According to Paul in many places in the scriptures. Even though he's not highlighting it as much here. Is that you will become a person who wants to follow the law. In light of who Christ is. Let me use Westminster Confession Catechism question 113. I can read through all of that list of how the many ways that I utterly fall short of upholding the Lord's name to the honor that it is due. I could read it, and you know what I could do? I could get to the end and think, "Man, (laughs) let's just never read that again." That that is uh, that is terrible. I feel so beat up. I feel so lost. I'm just going to get. I just I push all my chips to the middle of the table and I walk away. Like I'm just I'm done. I'm done. I'm tired of this Christian thing. I could respond that way. Or I could acknowledge in despair of myself and the law that there's no way I can ever keep this, but I could read back through the list, and you know what I can do this time? I can see Jesus never took the name of the Lord God's name in vain. He always fully honored. He never had an erring belief. He never in any way spoke superstitiously. He, 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 never, he never misspoke regarding one of his father's attributes. And everything he did is mine by faith. Everything he did is mine by faith. So much so that when God looks at me, he sees the perfect standard of Jesus Christ completely upholding the honor of God's name as my resume. Before Almighty God by faith. I could read the law and now you know what all of a sudden is happening in my heart? Well, you see it in my eyes. I am overwhelmed in love and devotion for Christ because I never could gain that standing without Him. And I, you know what I did? I read the law. And I reflected on the law how? With Christ. And now as it stirs into my heart, you know what I want to become? I want to become a man who won't take the name of the Lord my God in vain. I want to become that man. And when I won't act in that way, I will lean on Christ. And when I do, I will give him thanks because it's all of him anyway. And I live a life that's utterly free in the grace and the law that's embedded in the gospel. Friends, this is what makes the Christian life so beautiful. You're not going to find any standard that you can read and measure yourself up to it in your heart and practice and feel great about it unless you're looking through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. At that point, you begin to see that you're no longer under the guilty of the law, but you are in Christ under the not guilty. And you know what? Part of you wants to say, listen, somebody messed up the verdict. They read the wrong sheet of paper when the jury stood up. And in one sense, they did. They read Jesus' verdict for you. But here's here's the key. It's not wrong. It's the right verdict for you. By faith in Jesus Christ. And right now, it's the real verdict for you. The real verdict for you. And no one, not even you, can change that. Praise be to God. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, confirm these truths to our hearts right now as we've heard them through your word and the Holy Spirit and glorify yourself as we continue in love and devotion to Christ in the middle of this worship service. Bless us in this spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.